Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Last Show on Earth. I'm Alistair Bremer. And I'm John Owen-Jones. And welcome to the podcast where every episode we ask our guest the big question that nobody ever cared to ask. If there was a massive asteroid hurtling toward Earth, threatening to destroy life as we know it, but you could still see one more show before you die, what would it be? It can be anything you want, something you've seen, something you wish you'd seen, or something you've made up entirely. Now, in this episode, we are joined by legend of musical theatre and opera diva, in the kindest sense of the word, Rebecca Kane. Rebecca is likely best known for originating the role of Cosette in Les Miserables at the RSC, but has had an unbelievable career spanning the length and breadth of musical theatre and opera, something that not many people can say. She has starred in productions across the globe, musicals like Phantom of the Opera, My Fair Lady, Sound of Music, Oklahoma, Light in the Piazza... And in the world of opera, Rebecca has appeared in Lulu, La Traviata, La Boheme, Carmen, The Magic Flute, The Merry Widow... We joined Rebecca in the middle of her run of new musical Propaganda at the Lyric Theatre in Belfast, a production that I was lucky to see, and boy, has she still got it. An unrivaled soprano voice, it soars. Such an amazing sound. Yeah, absolutely, she's awesome. Uh, we were so pleased to talk to Rebecca all about her fascinating choice for a last show on Earth, what it was like originating a role in the biggest show of all time, the difficulties of singing at high altitude, and her extremely difficult experience working with a notorious theatrical producer. Here is the last show on Earth of the angelic Rebecca Kane. And I'm somebody who quite likes a bit of aggro. We get that impression, yeah. <laughs> I know, right? I like to see people making a fuss and things like that. I know, I know, there's just, I don't know why. You know, I think, I see things kicking off on the tube and I kind, I kind of sidle towards it. I, I find it quite exciting. Oh my God. <laughs> Here we ask the question, nobody dare to ask. If you had a day to live, what show would be your last? What is your last show on Earth? This is the last show on Earth. My name is John. My name is Al. Been friends a long time past. We want to know what show you'd see. If you knew it was to be your last, what is your last show on Earth? This is the last show on Earth. What is your last show on Earth? This is the last show on Earth. Welcome to the last show on Earth. The legend that is Rebecca Kane. Woo! Hi, boys. All right. (laughs) Well, I've got to say, that's the sexiest hi, boys, I've heard for a long time. Well done. Yeah, you still got it, babes. Thanks, John. Still got it. Now, I know you're in Belfast at the moment, but Alistair lives. What did you tell us what you're up to at the moment? I'm doing an amazing new musical called Propaganda, which some people may know by its previous title, which was uh, The Young Pornographers, because there's been a song that's been around for about... 20 years or so at one uh, some competitions it's anyway the musical is by Connor Mitchell who's an absolute genius who I work with a lot um he wrote the most extraordinary opera called Abomination um that uh we had a big hit with a few years ago yeah. and he is a genius and he's written the lyrics of the book and the music and done the arrangements for this and he's directed it um wow. and it's a fascinating amazing piece about just 1949, so just pre-Cold War, while the Berlin blockade was. And it's actually very funny in the sort of style of The Death of Stalin, you know, the um, mm. oh, yeah, movie. So it's great that kind of, I mean, it's very tragic and it I, certainly doesn't end well for me. I play a concert pianist who uh, has a guilty secret. No, don't spoil the story. Oh, because okay. I believe, Alistair, you're going to see it next week. Is that correct? Oh, brilliant. I'm seeing it on Thursday, bringing my friend Elliot Davis, who's another... West End composer, writer. Oh, fun to always have a drink in the bar afterwards. Uh, that'd be lovely. I haven't been to the lyrics since I saw Pride and Prejudice, the musical. 
it was over four hours long. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> but anyway, there we are. Wow. Talking of long musicals, we'll get on to Limis a little bit later on, I'm sure. I mean, okay. how can we have you on this without talking to you about, you know, creating one of the most iconic musicals ever? But you've had such a varied career, haven't you, really, when you think about it? I mean, you started off doing opera. Is that correct? Well, I always wanted to be an opera singer ever yeah. since I was about six. And my parents took me to the Metropolitan Opera to see Turandot, which I absolutely loved. And I oh, decided wow. then. And then when I was about 13, someone played me West Side Story. And then I was kind of stuck in this yeah. weird place, not knowing, you know, which way to go. But I got my equity card because in those days you had to get your card uh, yep. with a little opera company. But about nine months in... Um, I went up just for an experience, an audition experience, because back in those days, there weren't very many people doing musicals mm. in, this, in the UK. There weren't colleges churning out endless students who you know, yep. were so skilled. There were very few of us. So I went up for an audition for Cameron McIntosh's um, production of Oklahoma for Laurie, just for the experience of doing an audition. And I got it. Oh, wow. And it was so nine months in and I'm playing Laurie in Oklahoma, directed by Hammerstein's son, Jamie, who's yep. a great friend of Sondheim's. Great. And when then that finished, I, um, I went into um, Cameron's production of My Fair Lady, playing Eliza Doolittle, directed by Alan J. Lerner. Oh, wow. Um, and did the national tour of that. And this was all uh, before I was 22. Gosh. So it was an extraordinary start. Yeah. And I, and I'm not going to say it's because I was so brilliant. I just think that when, you know, the talent pool wasn't as, as huge as it was. Oh, you as do it yourself was. a disservice. I mean, that voice is still as incredible as the first day I heard it when we worked together on the three fantasies. Oh, thank you. But that's the only compliment I'm giving you, though. <laughs> I know, I'm a bit shocked. <laughs> I'll need a moment to recover. Um, but then after that, I went into the, the um, you know, people kept saying, well, you can't do both, you can't do both. Uh, so I went to Glyndebourne to be in the chorus, and that's where Trevor Nunn saw me. Oh, wow. So you'd already done musicals before Trevor saw you. That's interesting. He saw you in Glyndebourne. Yes, and in fact, in fact, I would have... I mean, this is... Show, I always tell this to young people as one of those examples of how when you think a door is closing, a window might be opening. It's not always the case, but I auditioned and got the role of Maria in West Side Story in the West End... Yeah, wow. And I wanted to delay my going into going to Glyndebourne and go the following year. But my agent that I had at the time turned down the job without coming back to me, for which oh. I subsequently fired him. Quite right. Wow. So I went and I did my only muggle job I've ever done, which was selling knickers and selfridges. And I woke up every morning thinking, oh, my God, I could be playing Maria in West Side Story, and I'm selling pants to people in Selfridges. Jesus. This is horrendous. And I never did do Maria, which is a shame. So yeah. I went to Glyndebourne, and, and, and he was watching me. Wow, that's and, incredible. Uh, and so then you, I mean, did he then invite you to audition, or did you go through the normal channels? Uh, we were doing a rehearsal for a very boring Mozart opera called Adomineo, which has great um, chorus scenes. And I was dancing around pretending to be um, a goddess in a temple. And we broke for lunch and he yeah. trevved me. <laughs> so they went that way. And this arm came out and he walked me into the wings and he said, um, I'm doing this musical. And I instantly said, I can't do another musical because I'd been told again and again, if I wanted to become an opera singer, I couldn't do musical theatre, that no one would take me seriously. Uh, and that is a whole subject and something I've had to kind of deal with my whole career. Yeah. Um, and uh, I said, I can't, I can't, I can't. But he played me no heed. And um, I did have to sing for Claude Michel and Alain. And I don't think, you know, I've already worked for Cameron. Right. And the next thing I found, I was out of the Glyndebourne tour and washed and brought to his tent at the Royal Shakespeare <laughs> Company. <laughs> <laughs> what a great phrase. We should also point out to the listeners at home who don't know what being trevd is. Would you like to explain what being trevd is? Oh, being trevd is a famous thing. He puts his arm around you and, and kind of walks you up and down the room and that's what being trevd is yeah. called. So Trevor yeah. Nunn takes you in a little private little like conclave Walk. of just you and him talking about something very quietly. He's done that to me as well. And yes. it's an extremely efficient way of cajoling people into doing what they don't want to do. Uh, he's a very, very <laughs> clever man. Uh, in that way. But he's also one of the few directors I've worked with, and I'm sure you'd probably agree with this, where he can say two words and you it changes everything you do. Some directors have to talk and talk and talk, but I found with Trevor he could say one sentence and it would entirely change my viewpoint on a character. Did you find that? No, I got very little direction from him as Cosette. Oh, well, <laughs> there we are then. <laughs> <laughs> 
But there was a lot going on. He was trying to get that rather large show up. Yes, 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 of course. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot going on. Um, And that that was like, how long was that originally when he first run it? Do you remember? Oh, God, it was forever. And, you know, interestingly enough, there were... There were bits of music that were taken. There was the most beautiful scene, uh, the rooftop scene, okay. where the, the largest part of the barricade slid into the centre section of the revolve yeah. and stayed put, so the tallest bit. And that's when um, Valjean would climb with Baby Cassette on his back oh, yeah. and go up into the fly. Like the scene in the book, yeah. And they put the music into the film, I noticed, Actually, Colm didn't go up into the flies. Um, Peter Polly did the oh, um, right. Peter yeah, Polly Carpu Carpu, did yeah. the stunt work with like a fake baby gazette. Oh, really? Back. And they were like marching with Roger and soldiers around. It was wonderful. Some beautiful bits. I do remember Michael Ball. I remember hearing screaming in the next dressing room. They're going to cut my song, <laughs> <laughs> which of course they didn't. No. And of course, my role has been cutting, cutting, cut. You know, there's nothing left of Cosette. Yes, it has been. Yeah, there's really nothing. There's nothing much attractive about it for an actor. Point no. of view I mean, it was always it was it was tough there. Well, and the only reason you have to sing high is because I put those notes in. Well, of course, all the, all the high notes in, all the floats at the end yeah. of the trios and the top C at the oh, end of Act girl. One. I said, yeah. yeah, I said, can I please can I go up here and show what I can do? And Claude Michel said, can you do that eight times a week? And I said, yes, of course I can. <laughs> so that's so I've left my DNA in the very bones of of Les Mis. But but we all did. I mean, that was yeah. such a freaky thing, you know. And, and, and I guess, and I guess, you didn't know at the time that it was going to be a show that would last forty plus years. Exactly, exactly. So when people come up to me and they do what I call the crouch, I'm sure you guys get people do the, doing the crouch to mm-hmm. you, and they come yeah. up and they go, "Oh my god, I just can't believe you're the original cassette," and they crouch down. I go, "Stop crouching, stop crouching." I say, <laughs> "Well, you know, the thing is, is we realized we realized it was a hit quite early on. I mean, I." you couldn't get through to the box office the day after we opened at the RSC. Um, And I remember seeing this American jump up uh, the scrim coming down at the end of that one. And just, he just went, this is the greatest musical I've ever seen in my life like this. Oh my God. But, you know, I think I was too young to really appreciate just how extraordinary that was. And I remember going directly out of Miz into Phantom, which had only been running for six months when I went into it. And, you know, I thought, well, another hit show, you know, whatever. And I remember yeah. thinking, but I'm looking back now, I thought, no, Crawford knew how incredible it was to be involved in a show that had this kind of about the whole thing. Yeah. But yeah. Um, no, it was extraordinary. But you have to realize at the time that it hadn't become what it has become since. Yeah. You know, something yeah. that people sing at barricades when there are revolutions. And this, yeah. this is my theory, like that lame is you can corroborate this. Les Mis is like the straight boys musical, right? It's like the musical that you all feel cool about. Yeah, it's musical yeah, yeah. theater, right? But yeah, you know, yeah, there's yeah. guns and everybody dies. And it's like, it's, like, it's yeah. like the butch boy musical, right? Yeah. Well, people, I think particularly, particularly sort of, you know, husbands that get dragged along to things, they, they, <laughs> what they expect is sequins and um, jazz hands. Well, Lacage will fall. That's you know, what they expect. Yeah, they <laughs> expect Lacage and then they get, they get Les Miserables, a different French musical. Yeah. And there's one beautiful story that a British helicopter pilot, I think he was RAF, told me. He said, he said that um, he said the boys in blue were just huge fans of Les Mis and that they yeah. used to sing it to each other as they flew in and out of these places. And this guy's a helicopter pilot. And what he yeah. used to do was, was flying into places like um, Helmand and, and places where these boys were being blown to smithereens, but surviving, but being brought out in bits, basically. Yeah. And he told me that what they did is when they flew in to collect the lads, they would all sing over their headsets. Do you hear the people sing? Wow. Oh, that's amazing. And when they flew them out to the hospitals, they sang Bring Him Home. Oh, my God. Oh, God, that's quite moving. Oh, dear. I'm going to have to pause for a minute. Joe. Obviously, Limits was a massive part of your life. And of course, you know, that success has opened so many doors for you. But, you know, since then, you know, you've traveled the world, you've done opera, you've done Phantom, you know, you've created roles and you've had a very storied and interesting career, not without its controversy, mm-hmm. I understand, yeah. um, which we might get onto later, depending on how this conversation goes. But what would you say has been really the one crystallizing moment of your career so far? I know it's happened to me probably happened to you, Al, where you've stood there and you've gone, this is why I'm doing it. 
Can you remember that moment? Um, it was when, it, because it is very, very difficult to go from musicals into opera. It's much, yeah. much easier to go from opera into musicals. And I actually right. get pretty yeah. pissed off when I get opera singers who are aging out ring me up and say, so how do you get into musicals? I think I'd be really good. To which I reply, okay, you want to do it eight times a week? You want to tour for Ken Wright? <laughs> do you know? Do yeah. you want to have that kind of a life? Can you yeah. do dialogue? Probably, yeah. Yeah. very yeah. possibly not. A lot of them, I find that very, yeah. I find it very yeah. patronizing. So yeah. it's it's very very hard to go from musicals to opera. So I think it was the day I got the phone call saying that I was hired to sing Pamina and the Magic Flute at English National Opera, and I realized I had made that jump. Uh, yes. I mean, I'd done it right. earlier because was I when I was in Phantom in Canada. I sang the title role of Lulu, which is an unbelievably difficult, extraordinary marathon of a difficult role that yeah. no one thought I could do. And when they announced it yeah. at the press conference, people laughed. And I was sitting there. It was extraordinary. But oh, I had a massive success with it. And, and it kind yeah. of launched my opera career. But then when I came back to England um, and I had taken myself out of spotlight for, for reasons we may or may not discuss because I did not want to do musicals anymore. And I, and I, you know, and I had been on the, I felt like I'd been on the outside looking in through the glass desperate because I wanted to be an opera singer, a serious opera singer since six. Yeah. And, and I had done it. And so that, that, and I remember, you know, cause I think I was behind the screen pretending to be asleep and looking out at you probably both stood on the Collie stage and that, that expands, yeah, well, scene, right. Yeah. And you did yeah. Sweeney, didn't you? So, so yeah. looking out there and just thinking, Oh my God, I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. I've done it. But it continued to be a, a problem. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, for instance, John Berry, when he took over, he had always been very disparaging about, um, about people who had done musical theatre. A lot of people did. It was almost as if you had a previous career in prostitution. Never mind the fact that it meant you could act. Yeah, it's, it's so bizarre. It's so stupid because it's like saying, you know, it, they, they assume, oh, if you're a musical theatre performer, then you can't sing opera. Or if you're a musical theatre performer, then you, then you can't do screen acting. But they're, they're separate skills. It's like saying, oh, if you're a dancer, you can't possibly play cricket. Yeah, so, I totally agree. But, but weirdly, that's not the case in America. No, exactly. Know? I mean, you only look at all the Broadway people that, that work. I mean, I, the Gilded yeah. Age, for instance, is full of all the Broadway divas. Uh, I'd also yeah. like to point out, slightly on a skewing off, that, that the soprano voice, the legit soprano voice, is way, way, way more celebrated in New York. You've got Chenoweth, you've got Benanti, you've got uh, Audra, you've mm -hmm. got mm -hmm. oh yeah. Kelly O'Hara, all these amazing people. Yeah. They don't like this kind of voice over here particularly. They don't. And I've watched that degenerate more and more, and I blame... It's it's really uh, weird. The music um, schools for insisting that all the girls learn to mix, even if they don't want yeah. to. So you're losing the definition between your Marias and Anitas. And there's yeah. always, this voice has always been used to signify a quality, a virginity, a purity. And that's why I think it was yeah. very clever of Trevor to take somebody, you know, a young woman from the Glyndebourne Chorus who was going to sound different, like maybe she'd been raised in a convent. Because this yes. sound, it, it, it means something. And we're losing that a little bit, I think. Yeah, exactly. That's why the tenor is always the hero and the baritone is always the villain in opera. It's very, very rare indeed that it's the other way around. Yeah, because the baritone's um, sexy, obviously... that's why. <laughs> All right, no, I'm a, I'm a baritone, uh, in a way. <laughs> oh, are you, though? So am I. <laughs> are so you, am I, me too. I've been, I've been described as a barry tenor. So uh, I'm not sure what that is. That just sounds like a Welsh bloke. <laughs> We've talked a lot about your career, but let's get into a little bit more detail with Al's 10 questions, where he asks you 10 questions all about your life and career so far. And uh, it saves us having to talk to you for three and a half hours about everything else you've done. So why don't we jump in now to Al's 10 questions? Are you ready, Al? I am ready. Yeah, are you ready, Rebecca, for Al's 10 questions? I'm ready as I'll ever be. Here we go. Dum, dum, dum. You played the role of Laurie in Oklahoma at the Palace Theatre in London. What magical production currently occupies that theatre? Uh, Harry Potter. Correct. Question two. You originated the role of Christine Daae in Phantom at the Pantages Theatre in Canada. 
Who was that theatre renamed to honour in 2011? Ed Mervish. I can hear the screams of Garth Dravinsky from his prison cell as it happened. <laughs> <laughs> you had to get him in somewhere. Brilliant. Question number three. You played the title role in The Merry Widow at Opera Holland Park. What is the German translation of the title? Uh, uh, Der Lustige Wittke. Correct, correct. Question four. Very good. You recently played Mother Abbas in the National Tour of Sound of Music. What is it you can't face, Maria? <laughs> Uh, is that a question? <laughs> no. Um, for anyone that doesn't, under, that doesn't understand that question, there's a very funny bit where she says, what is it you can't face, Maria, but it sounds like something else. Okay. The only place that ever got a laugh was Beirut. <laughs> you've, done, you've done the sound of music in Beirut. In Beirut, yeah. Yeah. Forget Lumis, forget Phantom. That's the one thing I've always wanted on my CV. <laughs> wow. <laughs> question number five. You played Violetta in La Traviata, excerpts of which, including Dami du Forza, appear in which 90s romantic comedy? Moonstruck? Pretty Woman. I've never seen it, so I wouldn't know. I admit, it's a brilliant film. Oh, come on. You played the title role in, in Alban Berg's opera Lulu. Pop star Lulu hails from which country? Uh, Scotland. <laughs> Correct. You knew that was coming, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't. Question number eight. You originated the role of Cosette in Les Miserables at the Barbican, which is a British icon of what type of architecture? Brutalism. Correct. Superb. Question number nine. Ooh, glitter is an anagram of what opera that you've appeared in? Oh, God, I can't do... I can't do anagrams. I don't know. I, can't, I, I want to cry at Sudoku. I don't do this kind of thing. I can't do crosswords. <laughs> oh, you were doing so well. You were, look, I thought you were going to get 10 out of 10 today. No. Rigoletto. No. Rigoletto is the answer. Uh, oh, God, my, one of my favourite roles, yeah. Question number 10, last question. I'm going to say some single-word clues to a musical production that you've been in. Name that show. Right. Waldorf, Caesar, Cobb, Wedge... Garden, Green, Caprese, Taboule, Tuna and Sweetcorn, Niçois, Rocket, Iceberg, Tomato, Cucumber. <laughs> I don't know, Light in the Piazza? I don't know what. I have no idea. Can I answer that? Yeah. Can I answer that? Go on. Is it Salad Days? Salad Days. Oh! <laughs> Correct. <laughs> oh, God. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. <laughs> That's hilarious. Very well done. So what did you score? Was it eight? Eight, I think. Eight. Yeah, eight out of ten. That's not bad at all. Yeah. Uh, and you did mention Garth Drabinsky during that. Now then, do we talk about Garth Drabinsky? Are you legally allowed to talk about Did him? you see yesterday he announced he was suing Actors' Equity America for $50 million? It's insane. Well, look, if anyone doesn't know what's going on with Garth Drabinsky and who he is, can you tell us in a couple of sentences, Rebecca, what Garth is Garth Drabinsky is a renowned, notorious um, Canadian producer who produced, uh, among other things, Ragtime uh, and more recently Paradise Square on Broadway. And I was in his first mm. ever production, which was The Phantom of the Opera at the Ed Mervish Theatre. Yeah, Fantages. And um, uh, it was a very difficult experience for me. I, I had a very bad time. I was not kept safe by him and not protected by him. And I was injured. And um, uh, he decided to take a new production back to Broadway last year. And at the same time, it was announced that Scott Rudin was having to withdraw from producing The Music Man because stories of his bullying began yeah. to come out. And I was working uh, with the Belfast Ensemble here on a piece about um, the Weinstein survivors. And I had spent yeah. three days reading testimony um, uh, in a trial scene. And the only trial I've ever lived through was the arbitration that I had to go through to get the rest of my pay after I was pushed out of Phantom and told not to come back to work. And it was a lot of money. And uh, he said that if I, I took him to arbitration, he would ruin me to, in the business. And I said, I never want to sing another musical again, bring it on and took him to arbitration, which I won resoundingly, including damages. Yeah. Um, and uh, so when somebody said that to me, I was already feeling very shaky from having kind of been reenacting that court situation. And I ran downstairs and I pulled out the arbitration document and I read it for the first time in 30 years and my jaw hit the floor. I mean, even um, uh, my endometriosis, um, uh, which I had suffered from, um, was used against me in the arbitration, something I had confided to the assistant director about that was wow. used as an example of just me being, you know, hormonal and crazy. 
Uh, and the early 90s were a, a shitty time for women. There was a huge amount of misogyny, if you think about people like uh, Marcia Clark, Hillary Clinton, Anita Hill, Monica Lewinsky. You know, you were a nut, you were a slut. And if you spoke out and if you I think with me, the dichotomy that a lot of people found was the fact that I was an intelligent, articulate woman, but I was dressed up as Christine Dyer. I was wearing a bonnet. And so when I fought back, um, you know, that was almost an, an offense to people. Anyway, yeah. I, I, yes, so I have spent a lot of time online saying, I'm warning you, what happened to me is going to happen to other people. Garth went to jail for defrauding, I think it was half a billion dollars. He floated his company, but was yeah. running some sort of a Ponzi scheme. But he was always flying first class and not, not even first class, uh, private jets. And everybody was paid too much, including me. Um, and, it, and it wasn't his money. It was like he was basically embezzling. Yeah, and it wasn't his money. Committing fraud. It wasn't his money. So he, I mean, I don't want to speak out of turn because I'm not super familiar with the yeah. whole thing. And I don't know what legally I'm allowed to say. Mm. But in your eyes then, can you describe Garth Drabinsky in, in one phrase to anyone who wouldn't know him? He is... Uh, Trumpian. There we are. I think you need to say And interestingly yeah. enough, even back then, 30 years ago, um, he reminded me of Trump. Uh, and that this is long before when Trump was just, you know, the New York real estate guy. I used to think, you know, you, they were the same person. And funnily enough, one of the other things I realized um, with working on uh, uh, survivors and abuse victims is that that what women do is we try and make things nice all the time. We go back and we laugh off the sleazy comment. We, we ignore the hand on our ass and, and that kind of stuff. And we normalize things. And I had uh, indeed invited Garth to this huge 20th uh, anniversary party. You know, I thought truth and reconciliation, I can put this behind me and everything. Yeah, uh, I had yeah. even suggested to him that we do a 20th anniversary concert. I had spoken to him and funnily enough, he'd said, I hate Donald Trump, you know, it was like the first thing. And I, and I thought, thought you so remind me of him. Um, yeah. And it, it, yeah, it was, it was, it was a very, the first six months of speaking out were horrendous. And I, they actually had to cancer fast track me because the trauma came out and I had a stomach ache for six months. And, and part, part of it was the fear of, of speaking out. But what did happen was I had so many women contacted me and said, because you did what you did, I went into work today and I said, I'm not going to be treated like that. And I'm, wow. or I will leave, yeah. or you need to pay me more. This is unacceptable. So in some ways it was a good thing, but in other ways it happened again. Paradise Square went tits up. People mm. were left hurt, damaged. Yeah. And I spent a year saying this was going to happen. So when it blew up, I was doing Piazza in the States and I had COVID. And one of my eyes had imploded and then the shit hit the fan in New York. And God. people started ringing me from TV companies and you know, a variety and saying, you, you know, you've been vindicated. And I said, but I haven't been vindicated. I've been proved right. And people have, yeah. it's happened again. So I don't yeah. feel any sense of. You know. Yes, achievement. Yeah. No, no, and do you know what? It's sad to say, isn't it? But it's probably still going to keep happening. Yeah, I think even it if will. people are as strong as you, you know. I mean, just look what's happening in Iran right now. You know, the whole thing that's going on over there and the uprising of women against the state, much needed, of course. But you know, it's, it's why does it still happen? It's like what, what is wrong with human beings that they have to treat other human beings with such dis respect and you know callousness i find it absolutely baffling i really do yeah. and certainly in our industry where everyone you know everyone is like you have to have empathy we've discussed this on the podcast before you have to have empathy. well we're in a difficult position aren't we because we're so replaceable yeah that's a that's a big part and we, it, yeah. and we have to be we are supposed to be grateful and be quiet yeah 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 yeah, yeah. you know we, I, i've worked with producers like that not quite as bad as garth Drabinsky, but i've also worked with producers who couldn't be more humane if they tried, yeah. who have like have cared about you and treated you with respect yeah. and been interested and worried about your welfare. And they all get the job done. So it proves that you don't have to be a prick. It, you don't have to be a prick. Yeah. And ultimately, we're only going la, la, la. You know, we're not inventing a vaccine. Yeah. Do you know I what know. I mean? No. 
We I entertain mean, people. You can look at it like that, but of course we are providing a valuable service for people who want to be taken away from their real lives and the suffering. Absolutely, yet, that too. At the same time, we are often suffering to do that. It's very, very peculiar. Yeah, it is very strange. Um, I think it's a perfect time now, as we got quite heavy there, to get into what three words. What three words have you heard that you'd like to challenge Al with? It's a special skill to give you a thrill, and oh, he's a real wordsmith. Give him three words and he can say how many letters they contain right away. What three words have you heard that you'd like to challenge Al with? Oh, what three words have you heard that you'd really like to challenge Al with? So, Rebecca Kane, what are your three words? Pretentious, transversal, oeuvre. What's oeuvre? Is that uh, how you spell that? I'm not going to help you. Well, it's 22 plus oeuvre, so 28. It is. But that's only if oeuvre is spelled O U E V R E. It's O E U V R E. <laughs> Fine, but yeah, but that still stands 28, yeah. I'm impressed. Well done. What three words have you heard that you'd like to challenge Al with? It's a special skill to give you a thrill and prove he's a real wordsmith. Give him three words and he can say how many letters they contain right away. What three words have you heard that you'd like to challenge Al with? Oh, what three words have you heard that you'd really like to challenge Al with? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. So, I mean, the whole reason we're here, my darling, is to hear about your last show on Earth. So could you please tell us, what is your last show on Earth? I would like to be present at the opening night performance of The Rite of Spring in Paris in 1913. Wow. Right. Um, that's a hell of a choice. <laughs> now, we're not opera fans. We're not ballet fans, are we, Alistair? But we have listened to this, and it's an extraordinary piece of music. It really is. Visceral. But why that performance in particular? I mean, because obviously what we're doing with the last show is that the meteor's hurtling towards Earth. Mm -hmm. You can click your fingers and you can transplant anything that you want to right now. So you'd be at the present day watching this, which yeah. I think would stand up because it's, it's such a modern, uh, uh, you know, almost futuristic piece of music that will, I think, last well beyond many, many other things. Because oh, of its, well, you like... see, I was hoping I could time travel at this point. So obviously, I've, right. I've completely misunderstood the entire concept of your no, no, show. no. That's that's no, fine. Do you know you what? Go back. We can click your we can click your fingers, and you can see this. But then you'd have to travel back in time to have the meteor land on you and kill you. Okay. Okay. That's, that's <laughs> the right. basic stipulation. I of this will podcast. be there. Yeah. I will have a date with the meteor. So you've gone Good. back to, when was it? Pre-World War II? 1930. So it's literally, right. no, it's literally the year before. World War I. Yeah. yeah, of course. I, for some reason, always think that's earlier, but it's 14 to So 18, do I, I know, yeah. but it's not. Yeah. It's 1418. Yeah. So, so it was an extraordinary time and the kind of the birth of modernism. So you had, you know, composers like Debussy and Poulenc and Satie and Ravel and artists like Chagall and uh, Robert Delaunay, who's a big favourite of mine, Matisse, Duchamp, yeah. Picasso, yeah. all these extraordinary people. And so mm. what happened at that performance is there was a riot because you had the posh shows that had shown up to see, because it was, I think, a triple bill, you know, La Sylphide, which is one of those white ballets of everybody in white tutus. Right, and yeah. I think the present, not the presentation, the Spectre de la Rose with Nijinsky dancing. And then they had this unbelievable thing, which they would never have heard the likes of 
that was sprung on them. And mm. I don't know, I think it might've been a bit like, there wasn't so much of a riot. It's a bit like what happened with Les Mis where this kind of, this this legend has built up that we had just terrible, terrible reviews, right? Yeah. We didn't, we had some <laughs> bad reviews and we had some really yeah. amazing ones, but that's been something that's been perpetuated. But the Bohemians and, yeah. you know, loved to rile the poshos in the boxes. And so <laughs> things were thrown. And I'm somebody who quite likes a bit of aggro. I, I, get, that, you know, I get that impression. I know, right? So I lie in bed and I watch Karens on TikTok. I like to see people oh making God. a fuss and things like that. I know, I know there's just, I don't know why. You know, I think I see things kicking off on the tube and I kind, I kind of sidle towards it. I, I find it quite exciting. I remember, you know, in opera and ballet, <laughs> unlike musicals, are places where you do hear booing. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Still, um, even no. Yeah, still, even no. Yeah. Still, still. I remember going to see um, uh, Carrera singing Carmen at the uh, Verona Amphitheater, and after he did the flower song, there was a riot, and people picked up their seat because some people wow. started booing him, and they were like took their seat cushions and they were hitting each other over the head. And, yeah, wow, that's incredible. It's a mad slumber party. I saw Martin Butterfly there, and it is one of those places where they take it very, very, very seriously. Very, very seriously. Yeah. yeah. yeah so. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like that bullfight atmosphere. And apparently the noise was so extraordinary that Nijinsky, who was the famous dancer who wasn't dancing mm. in it, but did do the choreography, he had to run yeah, back. not the horse. Not the horse. Not I knew the horse. you were going to talk yeah. about the horse, John. Okay. So predictable. Sorry. Uh, Nijinsky, <laughs> the dancer, had to run into the wings and clap his hooves together. I mean, his hands together. <laughs> order so the dancers could could keep the beat. Keep time. Yeah. Because they couldn't hear the music. That's they couldn't crazy. hear the music. Wow. Um, Why were they so up in arms? Was it just because it was so new? Because they'd never seen anything like it before. I mean, literally, the dancers have their feet turned. And if you if you go onto YouTube, you can see they did recreate the choreography. And even to our yeah. eyes now, it's quite I saw extraordinary. It. Oh, yeah. It's mad. They're hunched over. Yeah, the whole hunched time. over the whole time. The costumes are amazing. Yeah, like a Wayne McGregor choreography or it's one of those kind of modern you know uh what do they call interpretive dance things it's nothing like you'd expect a ballet from that era to be and, and they it's quite incredible and they seem to have no they seem to have total disregard for where the audience are sat everything's just inwards for yeah. themselves yeah and you're just a sort of you're just it's sort of brilliant. watching it like an unexpected spectator it is quite brilliant i have to agree i'd never seen it before i'd heard of the piece and i probably would have heard bits and pieces of it you know, because it's it's yes, everywhere. You have, yeah. It's influenced so much. I mean, you know, if you listen to it, like I'd said to you when we were talking about this prior to the recording, that it's Jaws. It's just the, the theme tune for Jaws. John Williams is basically... Well, John been... Williams. John Williams steals from the best. Yeah. Allegedly steals from the best. I mean, I hear great... And they all do. There's... Uh, yeah. I did a Benjamin Britten, Britten opera called Owen Wingrave. Uh, who, James Horner obviously thought nobody would understand that his score from Glory, there was like eight bars of it that was directly quote from Owen Wingrave like that yeah. but he thought no one will ever bust me and I yeah, thought yeah, oh my yeah. god <laughs> the thing is like you know with someone like Stravinsky who beca he became an incredibly influential composer after this he they really took a massive chance and I believe he didn't even like Nijinsky the ballet dancer's choreography and they redid it and there was a lot of it was lost over the years right but no they've managed to reconstruct a lot of it so you can see a version of it uh, they did. And, and well, it, but the thing was, is Diaghilev, who was the extraordinary um, entrepreneur that, that, that brought the Ballet Russe to the West, mm. um, was in love with Nijinsky. And Nijinsky ran off and married a woman. And so he had to bring uh, Massine back in to do the choreography. And Massine said, uh. I will come back and choreograph with your company, but you will never do any more of Nijinsky's work. Wow. Nijinsky went mad um, and died in an, an asylum. But it was an ex extraordinary period, beautiful people costume everything I just I've just always found it fascinating and I just think it would have been an amazing place to be and I think that's if I could just I've always wanted to time travel my other thing would be to go back to walk around London during the war mm, um the to, to be there my husband gave me very romantically a big book on all the London war damage the bomb damage um which is pretty fascinating if you know London well so yeah, time course, travel yeah. has always been interesting so if I could just go back yeah. there if the meteor is coming I could just time travel and have that experience I yeah. really like the idea of going back to an event because that's that sounds like something of an event it's something that's past time it's like we could I could go and watch whatever it was that Abraham 
Abraham Lincoln was watching. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, wasn't <laughs> he watching shot. Assassins by Stephen Sondheim? <laughs> What we also do on this show, we talk about your dream cast, but we can't really do that with this piece because it's a ballet ensemble and it's 40 minutes long. It's a ballet ensemble. I mean, you know, I actually am a huge ballet fan. Um, I'm a big fan of Ed Watson. And in fact, um, well, actually, I'd have to persuade him to unretire because he retired last year. He's still working at the Royal Ballet, but he he too was somebody who kind of broke the mould um, rather like Stravinsky did in just being the most extraordinary dancer. And um, mm. I just, I admire his work very much and I would definitely well, cast him. So you'd put him and, and maybe some, or, you know, I mean, it could be anyone really. I mean, I'd like to, I'd like to have a crack at it. Having, having <laughs> looked at that, I mean, all you need to have is a Barocca before. I don't think my last vision on earth is watching <laughs> you dance right of spring, John Owen Jones. Yeah, Thank you. Massive no. holes in the stage where I've stomped around like a big, concrete elephant although if there was a if there was a style of dance that you could achieve it would be hunched over stomping yeah. your <laughs> so okay well let's let's jump back in time then if so you've seen your ultimate dream show back in time mm-hmm. who would you have gone back in time with to watch that show who would have been your plus one i think i'd like to go with george gershwin wow bloody hell yeah, so, yeah, I think so, he was. I think he was a a, a good time. I, I mean, he died at thirty four. You know, did he really? That's incredible. Oh yeah, I know. And what, and, a, what a life he had then. My yeah, God. Yeah, and he's and and where he is. I mean, places like Porgy. He was good friends with Alban Berg, who wrote Lulu, yeah. the opera I did, yeah. and uh, he once showed something to Berg. He said, "You know, is what do you think of this?" And and Berg said to him. Good music is good music. And that's how I've always tried to live my career, not to be snobby about different forms of music, you know. Yeah. I think the score of, of Hunchback of Notre Dame is absolutely glorious, you know, mm. it's Mencken, right. isn't it? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. If it's a good tune, it's a good tune. Yeah. So yeah, there's um, no question. and yeah. I think he was probably funny and witty and and the, if he hadn't died at thirty-four my God, what would he have gone on to written? I mean, I it is such a tragedy brain tumour, you know, so well, sad. I didn't know that. Didn't know that That's either. like a, an era of music that I'm not really, you know, explored, but Gershwin was a genius, really, and his music lives on, but I had no idea. He was so young. Yeah, terrible. My God, that's yeah, that incredible. Glang, 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 Like, to write that at 30 <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So you'd go back in time, you'd see this ballet, this incre- with incredible music, which is basically the... Uh, old equivalent of what would now be called heavy metal mm. i should think and then you'd you'd have gershwin with you um watching it yeah. right mm-hmm. then would you like to bring gershwin back and then go to a restaurant of your choice afterwards do you know i i would but i but I, we never eat out it's like dinners on trays in front of the telly we live a very unglamorous yeah. what would be your tv dinner of choice well, I uh, roast chicken, but somebody else cooking it. You know, I'm just so sick of cooking <laughs> over the pandemic and like looking after oh, people. Yeah. You're not the first person that's chosen roast chicken, actually. Rob Rob Madge chose roast chicken. Rob Madge did. Yeah. Well, yeah. it would be my death row meal. I seem to having come having this conversation with you, John Owen Jones, about yes. your death row meal. Yeah. And he said yeah. he would order a Domino's pizza because he'd know what you were getting. Yeah. Well, my my thought <laughs> about what that. a disgusting pizza. This is another podcast, isn't it? It's death your row last meals. meal on earth. Yeah. I <laughs> I would have a pepperoni pizza because it's very hard to get that wrong. And even bad pepperoni pizzas, okay. Fine. And if you're in like, if you're in a state in America, like Texas, where there's still the death penalty and you're going to be killed, um, you know, I don't know, for murdering musicals, like I probably would be killed for, <laughs> um, I'd, I'd order a pizza. Roast chicken is also a pretty good thing to yeah. get down south. So, but I certainly wouldn't have like a steak because it'd probably be overcooked and I would be, I would be going to the electric chair. Furious. And what about your, your drink? It would, it would, it would normally be an interval drink, but of course you have no interval, so this can be a pre-show drink or a post-show drink, whatever you want. Post-show drink, somewhere incredibly sophisticated and beautiful. I don't know, nothing with bubbles. Probably just a very nice gin and tonic. I'm not a big drinker. I've got into gin and tonic in a big way because of the pandemic, and mm-hmm. I can't drink <laughs> wine anymore or beer because I found out after having COVID, I now have an allergy to the histamines that are in beer and red wine. Whoa. So I don't drink wine or beer anymore. So now gin and tonic is my tipple of choice. Right. And we've got like 40 different gins in my drinks cabinet now. It's just like, and they're on rotation. But I've got really into non-alcoholic gin, which is really good. Yeah, somebody gave me some for, for Christmas. What is the point? 
Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But then sometimes <laughs> on a weeknight, you don't want to have like a bit of a thick head. You just want to have a nice, refreshing drink. And oh, just, just drink some orange juice. <sighs> exactly. No, come on. I, I want to look after my teeth. There aren't many drinks as refreshing <laughs> as a gin and tonic, honestly. That's true. Water comes pretty close. Yeah, but Cold not as water. Str- yeah, but, you know, <laughs> I like to have the nice citrus and the florals and the botanicals. A nice G&T. Is that, is that with a slice of lime? Yes, I suppose so. I just, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't really drink that much. I just Well, then, yeah, what, what about soft drinks? I can't stand soft drinks. I cannot stand them. My mother drank Coke throughout my pregnancy, and I was born with an absolute hatred of anything soft. So, no. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. So, you, so, it would, so it would have to be alcoholic, but you don't like alcohol? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think for me, it would be more about the ambiance of, of whatever gorgeous place we were in, yeah. you know. Yeah. And George making me laugh. George being witty and funny and making me laugh. And something yeah. that you can sort of hold with like, with like one hand while you punch out a posh person with the, with the other hand. Yeah, or throw tomatoes at the stage. Absolutely, yeah. and say, you yob, don't you realise you just saw a great piece of art? Yeah, yeah. Ooh, it's the celebrity question. Ooh, who could it be? Who's the celebrity? Question from... Well, hello there, Rebecca. It's me, calling from beyond the grave. I must say, you look absolutely sensational today. Gorgeous. Stunning. You could be the greatest Bond girl there's ever been. And in fact, that's my question to you. If you were to be a Bond girl, what would your Bond girl name be? And don't forget, there's already been a pushy galore. So there, are. that was Sean Connery, uh, but he uh, he's he's still dead. Rebecca's recovering but, uh, her face. Yes, I know. Um, I asked him to ask you the most inappropriate question that Rebecca Kane would not want to answer. Oh, I hate <laughs> you. Um, Go on. What would your bond? If you were a Bond girl, what would your Bond girl name be? I don't know. What would you name me if I was a Bond girl? A good question. Well, you, I mean, what are your defining characteristics? Mm. Um, you know, your voice, obviously, what about your mucho, character. Mucho voce. Mucho voce. Mucho voce. Diva Beaver. Diva Beaver, Diva that's Beaver. the one. Oh, come on, that's your Bond name. Yeah. <laughs> Diva Beaver. That's a perfect Bond Isn't name. Isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's, a, yeah. it's the national, ca- you know, animal of Canada, for God's yeah. sakes. We've gone through everything for your last show, but there is one thing we would love to do with you, and that is for you to guess what the name of the song is in this section that we call Josh Groban Sings. Josh Groban, Josh Groban, you gotta try and guess at the song that he sings. Josh Groban, Josh Groban, you gotta try and get it, I really hope you get it. Josh Groban Sings. Alistair is now going to do a sensational impersonation of him, much better than my impersonation of Sean Connery. Uh, He's going to sing a song in the style of Josh Groban, and you just have to tell us what the song is. Okay. God. <laughs> okay, you can stop now. Thank you. <laughs> it's Piazza. It's Light and Piazza. Well light and the Piazza. Yeah. Yes. Of, yeah. of course, a show, a show which you've done, of course. Yes. Um, but much to your sadness, you only did it for a very short period. Do you want to tell us quickly? Well, about it was that? in the, yeah, so it was this summer and it was uh, in Central City Opera, which is an amazing opera house on the top of a mountain in Colorado, a very famous old theatre. And so it was always going to be on an opera schedule. So we'd, we're going to yeah. do 14 performances, but the whole company came down with COVID halfway through. So they locked us down for a week. So we did uh, nine performances yeah. out of 14, which is when you consider that they, they had two out of town tryouts for it. And then like 23 previews on Broadway before they opened. And that role of Margaret Johnson is so extraordinary. I mean, I would describe yeah. it as um, it's the mama rose for posh girls, basically, you know, <laughs> yeah, it has true, that yeah. much depth and empathy and humor and, and, everything because when you get to my age you don't get these big juicy roles that you can bring 
you know, what, 43 years of working and put it all into one big piece that are written for legit sopranos. I mean, what, you know? So I was just getting my teeth into it when, um, when we had to stop. And the last two performances too, I, I, you know, I would, I really probably wasn't well enough to go back on because it's such a big role. Uh, and, you don't have much oxygen anyway up at eight and yeah. a half thousand feet. I came wow. back and my dresser said to me, she said, your understudies out front and your cost, her costumes are all ready and we've got you an oxygen tank. And I said, that's <laughs> nice. Did you get everybody else an oxygen tank? And she said, no, no, just you. She said, well, I was 10 years <laughs> older than anybody else in the company. But actually I realized that I could have used that oxygen tank all along. Um, B.B. Newworth, who's a mate of mine from high school, she told me that when she did Cassie and Chorus Line in Denver, which is much lower than Central City, that she nearly spun off the stage first time she went on for Cassie um, during the big song because you just, you just, and it, I thought, well, I was suffering from stage fright because I do suffer from that now. But if I'd had the oxygen, I think that I would have done much better right wow. from the word go. So yeah. if I go back, um, I, I will definitely use an oxygen tank that's when I come off stage. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's not a bad idea. If I ever get called back to do Valjean or the Phantom, I might very well ask for one in my contract. You can get these just little canisters. with it. It's like, you know, what's that awful, horrible film? And, oh, I can't oh, remember. Uh, you know, Blue Velvet. Blue, Blue Velvet. Velvet. It's when you yeah. come off stage like this and then you walk on. I mean, I suppose that could also be a Bond girl name, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Blue Velvet, yeah. <laughs> We're going to wrap up, but I would like to very briefly touch on your stage fight because it's a fascinating subject if you want to talk about it. Would you yeah, be no, sure, I will that? talk about it, yeah. So, yeah, so your stage fight, you've just started experiencing that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, the last few years I've started... Well, actually, when I started working with you... <laughs> <laughs> It's not your fault, <laughs> but Entirely. that was a period. Women go through the menopause. So you're not the two butch boys. You probably don't want to yeah. discuss this, but hormones mm. are a thing, and yeah. and you begin to. I mean, I'm well past it now, so I have superpowers of not giving a shit about every anything. And it's a wonderful. It's a wonderful time of life, actually, on the other side of it. But uh, yes, yeah, so you start to doubt yourself, and I've had experiences on stage where I've I've. I come out of the zone, you know, when you go into the zone and everything's there and you're just clicking along and somebody says something to you and you just have the answer. And I, I come out of myself and I'm thinking, where do I go next? What's my next line? It's horrendous, horrendous, right. you know, and, and from having the stage be the safest place I ever was. I uh-huh. always felt completely in control of myself and so I could pick people drop lines. I could pick them up, stuff like this. And you yeah. never know if it's, if it's you are forgetting things or you're frightened of forgetting things. You don't know if it's the fear or if you can't do it. And that begins to eat away at your head. So um, it does get harder as you get older. um, And that's why a lot of people quit. But I will never quit. And um, (laughs) I will keep going because I still sing well, you know. So it's a waste not to. So, But I have a brilliant hypnotherapist. Um, who I've been working with for 10 years and I had to uh, dial it because this role that I'm doing, this piece I'm doing right now is very difficult school, very complicated. And uh, we were all struggling and I did a session with her, uh, phoned her and I don't know what she did. We talked about trees for a bit, but whatever the hypnotherapy was, I walked back onto that stage, gone. Wow, Gone. incredible. So I say to all those older actors out there, don't listen to the fear. You can do it. Wow. And, oh, this is a good point. I've noticed over the years that I've been working is now that you, people are insistent you're off book for auditions. Mm. This was never how it used to be. No. You always went in and read. Yeah. I mean, you were familiar with the material, so you could look up and give of yourself. But this whole idea now that you've got, to be off the book and I've got so many of my friends nobody wants to talk about it because it points to the fact that they're they're older Mm. but they say you know I can't do this anymore if I have to go in and be off book because it becomes about being off book and the memory and I can't do what I can do and of course when I've gone through a rehearsal period I will be off book and we will get there but if that's what the audition becomes about you're not going to get the best out of older actors. But I think it's a really important thing, and I don't think they get the best from you. It's unfair, isn't you know it? What? I think that yeah, I think you're right. I, I I think that it might be a UK thing as well. I've I've done a couple of meetings in the US where I've 
tried to be off book within like 24 hours and I've sat there and the, and I've, I'm sort of familiar enough that I can get through it, but I'm struggling a little bit or something. And they say, why don't you just hold the sides? You know? Yeah. And the gift of that. And then suddenly you hold them and you barely need them, but it's just, yes. it's the as fear. Soon as they give you that permission. It makes everyone's lives so much easier. You can, you relax. You're not, you're not trying to remember lines. Yeah, it's, yeah, just yeah. it's just a memory. A memory test is not an audition in my, no. in my opinion. Exactly. No. Exactly. No. Well, um, okay, well, look, I think that's it. Uh, just before we say goodbye, Alistair would like to share with you uh, the recap and wrap-up of your last show on Earth. So, Rebecca Kane, your last show on Earth is The Rite of, of Spring. I was going to say The Rite of String by Spravinsky. Um, <laughs> the, Rite of, the Rite of Spring by Stravinsky. You'd like to time travel back to 1913 Paris. What was the venue, by the way? Do you know off the top of your head where it was? It wasn't the Palais Garnier. It was a, a more. It was a more modern one, and I'm not quite sure right. what it was. Yeah, you wanted to be there. You don't want to. You don't want it to be at a different venue, no. No, no. I wanted to be that performance in that. Yeah, place. because she invites the aggro and oh, uh, and the riot and the blood and the chair throwing. Yes, and it was at the Théâtre des Champs Élysées. That's where it ah, was. Very good. There we go. You would like to go with George Gershwin, mm-hmm. where Amazing. afterwards you will enjoy a gin and tonic with a slice of lime. And a big plate of lovely roast chicken. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds nice. very, very nice. Bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a really interesting Whilst wiping evening. the blood from the corner of your lips. Absolutely, <laughs> and, from, and from my hands. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that is the last show on earth of the Diva Beaver herself. <laughs> Rebecca Kane, you have been an absolute legend. Thank you so much for joining us. We've had a wonderful time. Again, we could talk to you for hours, and I'm sure I will see you down the road. Alistair, report back with your potted review of Propaganda at the Belfast Lyric Theatre. Is that correct? Yes. That's yes. right. But before we go, actually, what you got next? What's coming up for you? Um, I'm going to do Abomination. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. In London, um, at the South Bank. When is that happening? That is the same, this is the coronation weekend, which I think is like... The yeah, it's my fourth, birthday it's, weekend as well, yeah. Yeah, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, so uh, yeah. I'm really excited about that because that yeah. is the most extraordinary role. I play a disgraced Irish politician um, uh, and it was written for me and it's a really powerful, extremely funny one act and I, I would defy anybody to, in, to not enjoy it. It is incredible. Wow. Well, I'll tell you what, we will definitely come and see it and we recommend everyone listening to this to book tickets now. We put a link on the podcast description and we will see you in London in May 2023. Brilliant. Thank you so much for joining us on the last show on earth, Rebecca Kane. Thanks, boys. Thank you. Well, there we are, Rebecca Kane. What an interesting choice and what a very, very interesting woman. Totally. She's one of a kind, I think. Fiercely intelligent, talented, funny, mm. and she doesn't take shit from anyone, including me. I love that and I love her and I really enjoyed catching up with her. So did I. And if you listeners enjoyed it too, please tell your friends, hit that follow button and listen again next time. You got a bit emotional at one point, didn't you, Judge? No, I just had something in my eye, that's all. It's okay, bring him home's your song if it made you feel a Now, if you want to see Rebecca do her thing and hear that thrilling voice, she will be appearing in Abomination at the Royal Festival Hall in London, Friday the 5th, Saturday the 6th and Sunday the 7th of May. A very short run and tickets are selling fast, so if you want to go, get them quick. And she'll have something else lined up already, she always does, so keep your eyes and ears peeled. And also, keep them peeled for season two of Dalgleish on Channel 5, starring Bertie Carvel. I join the show from episode three onwards as new recruit DS Daniel Tarrant, complete with 70s moustache. And if you're an American listener, then you can stream the whole series now on Acorn TV. Now, we have to go, as I'm not only performing tonight in Great British Bake Off Musical, which, I should say, ends its West End run on May the 13th, but we also have another podcast to record with a super special guest, and it's going to be a cracker, so don't miss it. We'll be chatting with her for the first time in forever. 
Ah, a little clue. Now, if you like the show today, follow us on The Last Show Pod on Twitter and The Last Show on Earth podcast on Instagram. And do listen next time when we interview someone else on The Last Show on Earth. On here we ask a question nobody dare to ask. If you had a day to live, what show would be your last? What is your last show on Earth? This is the last show on Earth! My name is John. My name is Al. We've been friends a long time past. You want to know what show you'd see if you knew it was to be your last? What is your last show on Earth? This is the last show on Earth!